0: there are a lot of papers up here so at some point I get off my notes and start speaking song lyrics it's I've jumbled them up just give me a moment we'll get back to it uh well if you didn't notice jake is out again this week he'll actually I'm not even sure where he is this week I know he was on vacation and he may be preaching at Mount angel I he may not but we um, trust wherever he is hopefully it's been a good week of uh, rest for him and time with his family. He's had many things he's wanted to put his mind to in terms of our ministry here. So whenever he's on vacation, he usually comes back with a list of things that we then need to focus on as a church body and move on. So it doesn't seem like a vacation, um, but that's what he calls it. So so we'll go with that. This morning, uh, the pleasure of bringing God's word to you, and I want to start by way of an example for us. I want you to think about just a classic car that you would find compelling to you. Surely there's some classic car that maybe comes to your mind, whether it be maybe some of the Mustangs from the 60s or the the Dodges from the early 70s, maybe the Studebakers, the 50s, but... If you think of these vehicles, you can remember them and see them and picture in your mind when they were new and they were driving down the road where they were meant to be on some fresh asphalt. The paint is perfect, the bodywork is perfect, they're running perfectly, they start when they're supposed to, they glide down the highway, and they were just a really pleasant sight to see. Don't you think that? After an amount of time, several years have gone by, or several generations later, decades later, and oftentimes these vehicles are found somewhere else. They can refer to them as barn finds or field finds, but sometimes you'll come across one and you'll see it out in a field where you know it's not supposed to be. They're not farm vehicles, they're not tractors, but you see it out there and you see that the elements have just really taken their toll. Tires are flat. The paint is now chipped and peeling. If it's even there, the vehicle's rusty. Surely it doesn't run. The, the chrome is pitted. We know that's not supposed to happen, but it does over time. The interior's been taken over by varmints and other things that have chewed it up and made nests all over it. It's now just kind of a sad sight to see. In fact, Ian, uh, a while back, sent me a picture of Uh, on Facebook of a vehicle for restoration and it really just showed two axles and then like piles of rust around the axles and that was all that was left. But yet somebody will see that vehicle and go and take it and they'll put it on a trailer and they'll take it home and they'll spend hours and time and eventually replace every single body part, every single bolt. They'll do what they call a restoration in the automotive industry. They'll take their time and find everything that has gone astray, everything that has been fouled up by the elements, and they'll fix it. And pretty soon that same vehicle, which was so sad to see where it had been found, is now out to Roam the roads again, and when people see it, you can't help but stop and look. Even if you're not a car person, you see a nice cherry red paint job drive by, and you just kind of, wow, that was really nice. I don't even like cars. but They just have a way of attracting our attention. I think we're going to see this similarity in Israel today. If you want to start looking in your Bible for the book of Ezekiel, we'll start to orient ourselves to that. It's just after Lamentations and just before Daniel. We'll be in Ezekiel chapter 36. And and really, as we think about this analogy, Israel is not where they're supposed to be. Israel is worn and tattered. And they've been beaten down and taken into servitude, into slavery in a far off land where they were never intended to be, where they're not free to worship as they want to. We know that from Daniel. And yet what we'll see today is that God is good and faithful to restore both the promised land that they've been taken out of and Israel itself. We're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 36. And I want to orient us to this, this chapter, kind of the find the star in the Bible. As you go into the mall, you walk up to a map, and you're not quite sure which side of the mall you entered on. And so you just look for that little star, and it kind of tells you where you're at. That's what I want to find for us this morning. Ezekiel lived during the Babylonian captivity. During the 70-year captivity, he's a contemporary of both Daniel and Jeremiah which is why his book is sandwiched there among them. Nebuchadnezzar's in power at the time, and Israel has been taken into captivity. All of Israel is now in Babylon, and he was likely uh, one of the original 10,000 that was taken away with Daniel. It's believed from the historical record that Ezekiel's likely writing from about the time 593 to 570, and if you if you know your Old Testament timelines, we, we stop hearing Revelation around 400 B.C. So this is a little over 100 years before God is going to go silent until the Messiah comes. Malachi receives the last revelation, but Ezekiel is in this spot towards kind of the end of Old Testament revelation. And from this vantage point, I want us to see where, where we're at. Israel's been exiled into the Babylonian captivity. They've been removed from the the promised land, and it's the Edomites who've now inhabited the promised land. If you remember, that's the bitter enemy of Israel. Of all the people that Israel would want to come take over the promised land after they're exiled, Edom was the last nation on earth that they would want to come and take over the promised land. So the land is utterly Defiled Egypt's been, or excuse me, Israel has been taken into servitude, and everybody is gone, every city is desolate, everything has been abandoned. Just trying to think for an example for us. I think it would be suddenly the United States being taken into servitude into China and Russia coming in and inhabiting our land and then watching this unfold from overseas. Unfortunately, we have something of an example to us right now in Afghanistan as the Taliban is coming in and taking over and taking the Afghan nation into their servitude. And imagine the fear and horror that we see watching this, and yet the people experiencing it must be, must be magnified that much more to them. So understanding that the Israel has been taken away from their land that God promised to them that they have been taken into servitude under Nebuchadnezzar. That brings us into Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's really broken up into a few segments. The first 24 chapters is a warning to Israel to the coming judgment. Israel's being warned by Ezekiel. He's prophesying to them that they are about to fall. They are about to go into captivity. They are about to experience things that they can't imagine. They'd been warned. They knew this was coming. They knew this was the opportunity to repent. And God makes it very clear to Ezekiel, if you don't speak these things to my people, then their blood will be on your head, Ezekiel, for not prophesying these truths to them. In chapters 25-32, to 32, he pronounced judgments on all the, all the outlying nations that are around Israel. He warns them for the things that they're about to do. To the promised land, and that he will judge them. In chapter 33, he calls for Israel's repentance through Ezekiel, and he warns them if they would just turn astray off the path, that these things will not come to pass. And the last portion of the book, in chapters 34 to 48, he's going to prophesy about Israel's redemptive future. His plans for them in the future that right now, surely Israel's having a hard time seeing. In chapter 36, Babylon is his, uh, or, excuse me, Jerusalem has fallen. The temple has been destroyed. Everything that they had worked to build in the promised land and the Lord has promised them has been taken away. And so what we're going to see in chapter 36, and there's three points here that we can focus on today. In verses 1-15, through 15, we're going to see that God's ability to redeem the promised land. Now, as we think about these, I want us to parallel in your own mind at the same time as we would talk about what God is doing here in the Old Testament and what He is he's teaching Israel through this text, or teaching us about Israel through this text. I want us to understand how we can view this in a New Testament, New Covenant context. Which I think would be this, if God is able to redeem the promised land, from the reproach it was in, in Ezekiel chapter 36, God is able to create a new heaven and a new earth for us. So point number one would be God's able to redeem the promised land. Point two would be that Israel and man defiles himself. Israel is utterly sinful and undeserving of God's compassion and grace. And we ourselves, as Tom had mentioned, fall into the same category. Point three would be simply this, that Israel's redemption is God's vindication. And it's the same for us. God keeps His covenant for the purpose of vindicating and glorifying His holy name. If you've already found your way to chapter 36, let's read through this passage quickly together. Starting in verse 1, he says, And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, Aha! And the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides, so that you became the possession of of the rest of the nations, and you became the talk of evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God, thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills and the ravines and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities, which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt, that they might make its pasture lands a prey. Therefore prophecy concerning the land of Israel, and say to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath, because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you and I will turn to you and you shall be tilled and sown and I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The city shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will let people walk on you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess you, and you shall be their inheritance. And you shall no longer bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour people and you bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall no longer devour people and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. And I will not let you hear anymore the reproach of the nations, and you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord God. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel Lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that the people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundance and lay no famine on you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways, your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves and all your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act the Lord God be known to you be ashamed and confounded for your ways O house of Israel let's pray God we thank you for this passage we thank you for your goodness to us that you give us many lessons in the Old Testament that we can observe Israel we can see how faithless man can be even in the midst of your miracles and your provision even when you would speak to them personally and lead them personally, they would still fall astray. Our hearts are prone to the same thing, Lord. We are prone to wander, and we know this. God, we know that You are faithful and good to keep Your promises to us, to keep Your covenants, to fulfill every prophecy of Scripture that You have declared. Let us today see Your prophecies and Your goodness, knowing that because of Your holy name, You will never turn astray for them. You'll never forsake them. Lord, your holiness demands that you are faithful to your own words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verses 1-15, through we're going to summarize this quickly because there's a lot of verses here, but what I want us to see as we read through that is it's clearly God that is speaking. Thus says the Lord. Thus God has said. God calls the land here to attention, Much like a military leader calling a platoon to attention or driving a platoon as they would give commands. In the same way that the angelic host would jump and respond to every one of God's commands, so does every molecule and hill and valley and piece of God's creation that he's designed. We see this over and over again. We saw that at the Red Sea that the water would part and do something that's unnatural because God had commanded it. We see and we heard in, in Psalm 106 that God had opened the earth, created a, a crevice for people to fall into for a sign of judgment and then to close back up. In New Testament, we see Christ commanding the waters in the boat. We see that the fig tree, when it doesn't yield its fruit, is then condemned and shrivels up and dies at that very moment at the words of Christ. God's creation responds to Him in all ways and so as He comes into verses 1 to 15 and calls creation to come listen to him well, it would be the same as if he's talking to everybody else although we see creation and sometimes yell at creation or get upset at creation it doesn't respond or listen to us so this can be unnatural for us but our understanding and relationship with nature and all things created by God are not the same as And we need to understand that as he begins to talk to the land of Israel, all of the promised land that he had created. In Job chapter 38, we see when God finally answers Job's question, God actually responds with a series of questions. And if you remember that encounter, he asked Job where the storehouses for hail are kept. Where do the winds come from? When is the the sun set to rise and fall? When does the moon take its orbit? When did all these things come into being? The waters, the rains. And Job has no answer because in that moment Job realizes that it is only God who has this power over his creation and all things. He's sovereign. We see this in verses 1 through 15 where repeatedly he's calling. His creation in the promised land to listen. And He's going to prepare the land because while now it is desolate and barren and unproductive, well, He's going to bring His people back. And in doing that, in His goodness, He is going to prepare the land before they return. Why was the land desolate? Well, quite simply, God had caused it to become desolate. We'll get to that reason here in a few minutes, but God had made the decision to move the people out of his land and to allow it to be consumed by an alien nation. We see that in verses 2 and 3. And so Edom had come in, and they had taken the land as spoil for themselves. They were an intruder, a harlot in the land. They were never meant to be yoked together. The promised land was a promise to Israel. It was meant for Israel. It was prepared for Israel, yet now they're gone, and Edom is in the land. And yet, Edom's response is that we have overtaken the Most High. Edom had assumed not that they'd beat Israel, but that they had actually defeated God. If you remember when Israel came into the land, they came in out of Egypt, as Jake had talked about a few weeks ago. They, they weren't really warriors. They weren't really ready to go you know, move through the promised land and get rid of everybody. In fact, they were afraid because there were big people in the land. And yet, they had swept through the promised land. They had taken it over. It had become theirs. They had removed some of the people that they were supposed to remove. And yet now, Edom's ability to come back and inhabit the land, in Edom's mind, meant we have actually defeated God. This invokes God's jealousy is they would speak this way about him. I I envision this being the opposite of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Remember when Elijah is saying, where is your God? Is he sleeping? Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's using the bathroom. He has all these kind of sarcastic jokes for them about where their God might be. And I, I envision this being the opposite of that. Now Edom is saying, Israel, where is your God? He's no longer here. He's deserted you. He's deserted this land. And we have taken this for ourselves. So you see God's jealousy in verses 5 and 6 is invoked and now He is going to come to judge those people who have come in the land. And what's the response going to be? What's He preparing? Well, in verses 8 and 9 it tells us that the land is going to be more fruitful than it ever was. So the great fruit that Joshua observed coming into the promised land is now going to be better than it was. The land will be prepared to support His people as they come back. And so God is calling His creation into order. He is judging the Edomites for coming in and taking possession of a land that was never to be theirs. And soon He says, I'm going to call Israel, My people, back into this land. Land, you get ready because soon there will be a thundering of Israel's return. And when they come into this land, you need to be prepared to produce for them. In verse 10, Israel's coming back, and in verse 11, we see that the, that the first state will be overtaken by the second. That the former glory will be less than the next. That as they come back, all the cities will be reinhabited and rebuilt. And God's people will reign there, he says forever. This is going to be their home. Now in all of this, we see God is sovereign over His creation. We see that God is going to be the one who redeems the land. Israel has no capability to come back. Israel's not going to come back and begin to work and till the land and make the land fruitful, and by some great agricultural uh, ingenuity, is the land going to become productive again? God is going to do this on His own for them to keep His promise. And all of the people who would have mocked the promised land and said, look at this land that that keeps them from having children, that is not productive. God said it would be productive, but it's not productive. Aha, it's ours. Now we've taken it. Well, they're going to meet their judgment. And as they're kicked out of the land, the land will then become productive again by God's mighty hand. And God says, never again will his promised land be mocked by the nations. As we move on, we see that Israel had been kicked out of the land. And I say we come back to why. We see this in verse 16. Israel and man had defiled themselves. Verse 16, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living on their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood with which they had shed, because they had defiled it with their idols. Well, What were those sins? Well, We read about some of those in Psalm 106. Psalm 106 in verse 7, we had the rebellion at the Red Sea. In verse 14, the sin in the wilderness. When they complained about the food and the water. Remember, they desired to go back to Egypt. We would have been better off in Egypt, God. But yet, here we are in the wilderness for us to die. In verse 16, we had the envy of God's anointed, Aaron and Moses. Remember when they complained about why are they so special? Verse 19, the golden calf at at Mount Horeb. Verse 24, they complained about the promised land. If you remember when they got there, they complained about the people that inhabited the land. They didn't want to go into the land. And we learned in the end of of Hebrews chapter 3 that that was why so many of them actually just died in the wilderness. God wasn't going to allow them to enter the very land that they were complaining about because they had forgotten so quickly the miraculous... Deeds of God. In verse 25, Psalm 106 records just general disobedience to the commands of the Lord. In verse 28, they're worshiping worshiping Baal. In verse 32, we cover the sins at the water of Meribah when Moses disobeyed the Lord. Verse 34, Israel enters the promised land. They don't destroy the people that they're commanded to destroy Which leads us to verse 36 where we have idol worship. Verse 37, child sacrifice. And verse 43 just says this, there were many deliveries and many rebellions by Israel. When we think about Israel, there wasn't just a couple simple sins that led to Israel's uh, ejection out of the promised land. Israel had a long list of idolatry. They were prone to to wander so quickly from the commandment of the Lord. And God's justice demanded that He would then punish them for their iniquity. So in verse 19, we see it says, it's quite simply, So I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed throughout the lands according to their ways and their deeds. I judged them. This isn't a random test. This wasn't poor luck. It wasn't poor military planning that they were taken over and taken into slavery. It was simply that the Lord had determined that this would be their punishment. Why did they need to be punished? Well, if you remember in Exodus 19, they'd entered into a covenant with the Lord. This is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. God told them in chapter 19 of Exodus, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, then you shall be my possession. So, There was a a call and response here. God says, I'm going to give you my commandments. And well, the Old Testament law demanded that they obey those commandments, otherwise suffer the consequences. If you remember in chapter 24 of Exodus, they say, we've heard all these words, we've heard all these commandments, and Lord, we will obey. We remember your good deeds and how you rescued us from Egypt. So in Exodus, they remember... The Lord rescuing them. How quickly they forgot. So you see in the Old Covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone for the people to obey. And multiple sacrifices were made for sin. The high priest, as we talked about last week, who had interceded for them, was beset by human weakness. That human weakness led Aaron not to even enter the promised land on his own. If you remember, he dies in the wilderness with the rest of them. So man, is, Israel is beset by this sin who's constantly causing them to stumble and fall. It's their identity. It's who they are. And it's not going to change. And that's not even the end of it. When they came to the nations... Where God had sent them, they profaned the holy name of the Lord because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have left His land. When they were taken into captivity, when they got there, although there was a celebration over bringing Israel into captivity and into servitude, well, those nations didn't just blame Israel, they looked upon a holy God and said, well, you failed them. You promised them that land. You said they would stay there, that they would be your people. And yet now there are people and that's not their land. That's Edom's land. That belongs to somebody else completely. And so God says, even, even when Israel's taken into captivity, they're still profaning his name. he says this in verse 21. This is the same concern he had in the first 15 verses of the chapter. He says this, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Even though Israel is lost and confused and taken into captivity, God is watching this scene and he's rightly discerning, well, if he doesn't keep his covenant with his people, it's his holy name that will be second-guessed. You see, Moses made the plea, remember in Ezekiel chapter 32, with the same light of thought, Lord God, why is your anger burned against your people? You've brought them out of Egypt into this land just to kill them. And then the people will say that you brought them out with evil motives. Let your wrath be turned aside from them for your holy name, for your promise to them that you would rescue them. If you bring them out here and kill them, there's going to be confusion about your goodness and about who you are. Israel had become utterly lost. There was no hope of them returning. There's no way for them to fight their way out. They'd already tried to fight their way so they wouldn't get where they were in Babylon, yet here they are. They're lost. And God's realizing that, well, Israel has gotten themselves in a real thick of it. And the only way that anything can change this circumstance is going to be by. My intervention by me holding to the covenant that I made with them. So in verses 22 through 32, what we're going to see is Israel's redemption and God's vindication. Verse 22 says this, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. It's not for your sake, house of Israel, that I'm about to act but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I show myself holy among you in their sight. He's making it very clear. Israel, you've profaned my name. And so what I'm about to do is not to rescue you because you are so worthy. Because you've been so faithful. Because you've shown me a glimpse of righteousness in your lives and I just think you can turn it around if I give you one more chance. No. God makes this utterly clear to us multiple times. He is going to rescue Israel. He's going to intervene on their behalf not because of them, but because of His great name, because of His holy name. And He's going to show Himself holy among them in the sight of everybody. How how are people going to see God's holiness? Well, it's going to be through His action and through Israel's return to the promised land. But it's also going to be because the people are finally going to become holy. And the nations are going to observe their holiness And like they observed their servitude and looked to God as the one who allowed them to be taken that way, well, they're going to look to God in response to Israel's holiness. So what's what's the plan? Well, in verse 24, he says, well, I'm going to take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands. I'm going to bring you into your own land. We're going to have a miraculous returning. They're going to come out of captivity. They're going to come back to the land at some point. That's the promise. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you will walk in my statutes and are careful to follow by ordinances what's God going to do well when he brings them back he's going to cleanse them he's going to remove all their sins and iniquity from them something that they couldn't do on their own the cleansing is going to result in a new heart and a new spirit they're going to be regenerated completely they're going to have a full restoration No longer will their heart be a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. One that the law will be written on because God will put His Spirit within each one of them so that they can understand His words and His ordinances. If you remember, the psalmists had prayed multiple times in the psalms that God's Word would be written on the tablet of their heart. Why? So that it is inside of them, not outside of them. The Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, the law was written on the outside of the body. It was written on a stone tablet. But now, under this promise, this is New Covenant language, that the law is now going to be written on their heart. And not only that, God's going to give them a supernatural ability to obey the law that is written inside of them. This is the baptism that John chapter 3 talks about that somebody must be born again of the water and the Spirit that they would be regenerated. Jeremiah also prophesied about this. In Jeremiah 31, he he spoke about a new covenant coming with Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant which they broke. See, the old covenant was breakable by man. But this new covenant God is making And he says he'll put his law within them and write it on their heart. He'll be their God and they'll be his people. This new covenant is an unbreakable covenant between God and his people. Once you've entered into this covenant with God, it's no longer dependent on anything that you could do or your obedience. It's solely dependent on God keeping his word. Hebrews chapter 8 talks about this. that now we have a more excellent ministry to the extent that He also is the mediator, He being Christ, of a better covenant. So the Old Covenant, you had the laws written on the stone. In the New Covenant, the laws will be written on our hearts. In the Old Covenant, the sacrifices were many, and they were animals. In the New Covenant, the perfect sacrifice is going to be Jesus Christ, who then becomes our great high priest, as we've been learning about, to intercede for us. Not like the old priests who were still prone to sin and lead their people astray. As we saw, Aaron was the great high priest, also made the golden calf, also didn't make it in the promised land. Yet our great high priest, well, he's our perfect sacrifice. He'll never lead us astray. He's our intermediary. In fact, we know that he's gone to prepare a place for us in the same way that God is speaking to Israel about the promised land and the millennial kingdom, which is that language to prepare the promised land for when they would return. Well, Christ has told us that He has gone to prepare a place for us, that eventually there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Surely, as God is faithful to keep His Word, as we've seen throughout the Old Testament and the miracles that the Israelites observed, He is still faithful to keep those to us today and forever. God says, then after all this, what's Israel's response? Well, finally, Israel will be obedient to his commandments. After God does all this work, and it's the same in the Old Testament as the New Testament, if you're striving to obey the laws and commandments of the Lord on your own, well, you'll never be successful. In fact, you'll end up in the same bondage that Israel does. And you'll be in the same dire need of rescuing that Israel does. What does God have to do? Well, God has to remove the heart of stone. Install a heart of flesh. Give you His Spirit. Write His commandments on your heart so that maybe then you'll now get it and see clearly with pure eyes to understand His Word and His truth. While the result of both is the same, really under the old covenant we we see Israel's multiple failures under this new covenant that Ezekiel's talking about. There'll be no more failure. Once redeemed, you'll always be redeemed. God says, Israel will now live in the land that He gave to their forefathers, so they'll finally be His people. He will be their God. He'll save them from all their uncleanness. He'll call for the grain and multiply it. There'll be no more famine in the land. Instead, I'll multiply the fruit and the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not again receive the disgrace of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your wrongdoings and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and be humiliated in all your ways, house of Israel. Understand the last two verses is simply saying that when you understand the righteousness that's gone before you of a holy God, you understand your sin before Him, well, you can't help but remember your iniquity that He would save you from. And He's reminding them that He's not just saving them for the sake of saving them. He's not doing it because of anything that they've done. Quite simply, saving them for his own name's sake. That he would receive the glory and the honor. As we think through Ezekiel 36 today. Really, the point of this passage for us quite simply to see is that man's tendency is to go astray, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It applies to us the same as it does Israel as Israel had repeatedly gone astray with significant sins in their life, well, if we consider our own hearts and the sins that are within, we see similar depravity. We see the same lostness and we see God's same sovereignty that He can call into repentance the heart of Israel that, well, He does to New Testament believers as well. We're looking forward to this work That God would do in Israel, we can see that Christ has already offered us the same salvation. And again, it's not for anything that you've done or any work that you could earn on your own under the new covenant. It's quite simply this that you would recognize your own lostness, that you would understand your own depravity like Israel, your own enslavement to your sin and your flesh. That you would understand that God has offered you a different covenant. A forgiveness that you can't earn, you can't add to, you can't do anything with it. Except for acknowledge that you need it. To confess your sins and to be thankful for Christ who offers that forgiveness. God says He'll be good and faithful to forgive. Now, while this hasn't fully happened for Israel yet, we know that because the promised land is not producing the fruit promised in these verses or in Revelation. And we also know that as believers, we haven't experienced the full promise that God offers in our glorification. But in both, we can align His truth to our lives and we can understand His faithfulness to His Word. That what God has said God will surely do because He's holy. For Him not to follow through with anything here would mean He's not holy. He's not just. He's not trustworthy. And we know that's not our God. We know from Scripture, we know from the acts that we've seen and the prophecies that have been fulfilled that God is good and faithful. As we leave here today, let us just consider these truths and how they can be an encouragement to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the Old Testament. God, often you send us there to understand Israel's history and really why man is so prone to fail when it comes to upholding your righteousness standard, serving and worshiping you. God, we are so lost as Israel is, but yet You offer us a salvation that is free of charge. That if we would just come before You, we would understand Your holiness and acknowledge our own sinfulness. You know there's nothing we can do to change who we are. God, that only You can change our hearts. Only You can plant Your Spirit within us. Only You can wash and cleanse us of our sins. We, like Israel, have no hope in this regard unless You come forth in Your goodness and offer those things to us. And indeed, You have through Your Son, Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here today who doesn't know Christ as our Lord and Savior, well, I pray that You would help them understand their sinfulness, their utter desperate situation that spiritually they are bankrupt. but yet You have offered a way to eternal life. You have offered forgiveness of sins. You have offered a new heart. You've offered Your Spirit to dwell in them forever, to comfort them and keep them as a promise until they enter into glory. Lord, help us to be encouraged that even though Israel was in a terrible spot, Lord, we see You standing back in Ezekiel 36 and recognizing their desperate situation. We see You and Your goodness giving them what they need for the moment. Applying to them a change and a new covenant that they can then worship You forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.